Uh, over the summer, we've had people speaking uh, from the leadership of Kettlebrook Church, and one of those people today is uh, my good friend Steve Farina. I met Steve about five years ago when he and his wife Martha returned back from about 20 years uh, in Central Europe. They were in Romania and then Hungary as missionaries, and they bring to us uh, just a, a, a profound amount of experience and wisdom. Steve now serves uh, both on the elder team here at Kettlebrook, and we're glad to have him. And her, he and his wife Martha both have a great, great heart for prayer. And so during the year, you will see them kind of fomenting the revolution of prayer here at Kettlebrook, as it were. And they have a prayer room in back that they always invite people to be a part of uh, one Sunday a month. So Steve, why don't you come on up and uh, open up God's word to us. Somewhere. Give a warm Kettlebrook welcome to Steve Farina. Thank you. Well, I'm so glad uh, to have the opportunity to talk with you this morning. And uh, Martha and Anthony and I have been attending here at Kettlebrook for about two years. And I want to thank you for that opportunity to set up an experiment with the prayer lab. Um, our, Martha and I will be renewing the prayer lab uh, this fall, as, um, and we hope to f- more fully develop our relationship with Jesus through prayer. A couple books that I want to promote to you uh, related to prayer uh, are as follows. Um, this first one I got from Ginny Steiner, and it's called The Chicago Neighborhood Prayer Guide. Can we go to that next slide, Sue? Not working. Okay. <laughs> Tune in later. We might have it. Anyway, Chicago Prayer Guide. There it is. Oh, too far. Go back to, and we'll get to that one. But I received this from Ginny, as I said, and it is a book that gives an overview of the prayer needs in the 79 different neighborhoods in Chicago. Martha and I have enjoyed interceding for the specific needs of each neighborhood, and Ginny and I would love to find a way to develop a guide for the eight districts of West Bend. This is a great prayer tool. Next one. Uh, the second in the book is called Reclaiming the Art of Biblical Meditation. This is a practical and helpful guide to help a person slow down and be more intentional in contemplating who God is and in relating to Him. You'll meditate on several of the great promises of Scripture as the author encourages a greater knowledge of God and intimacy with Him, a greater understanding of His will and of His peace. This is another excellent, excellent prayer tool. Now, the last book is called Bitter Choices. This is my book. This is a fascinating book that gives descriptions of the several people groups in the North Caucasus in place in which our church family has a concerted interest. You will learn how the North Caucasus has been an ancient intersection between the often warring larger nations of Russia, Turkey, and Iran. And you'll follow the cultural and religious clash between these peoples and the Russians as the Russians seek to add the North Caucasus to its empire. Okay, so maybe it's not a specific book on prayer, but it will help in your understanding of the North Caucasus people who we are praying for. Good book. Just excellent. And then 
There's one last book. But first, I want to add a, add a, a question of you kids, the children who are here. What's your favorite book of the Bible? What's your favorite book of the Bible? Well, there's 66 books. Do you have a favorite that you like to read? Favorite book of the Bible. How about the book of John? Like John? How many people, John is your favorite book? Oh, just one or two. How about the book of Ruth in the Old Testament? Ruth. My sister-in-law, Amy Ruth, thinks that's the greatest book ever. She reads it over and over. Someone like Ephesians? No, Ephesians fans, there they are. Okay, see it in the back? Good. For me, my all-time favorite book is the one that Mike mentioned, the book of Proverbs. And I think it's very appropriate that we look at this book because it's Solomon. Solomon is the author. So King Solomon was, as it said in our reading, uh, the son of King David, the third king in our series on Israelite kings. And because of his wisdom, Solomon is the author of many of the Proverbs in the book of Proverbs. May I give you a sample? Just a sample. Let's look at this next slide, Proverbs 3, 1 to 4. If you would turn in your brown Bibles, that's on page 450. Page 450. Still having trouble with it? I'm so sorry. Yeah, okay. Page 450 in your brown Bible. There it is. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart Keep my commandments. This is Solomon talking to us. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Now I'm using these as props because I know Troy doesn't have a tie. doesn't own one. Bind them around your neck, kindness and truth. Got to take your glasses off in order to get them. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. This is King Solomon teaching you, teaching me the wisdom that he has gained. Wow! Length of days. Years of life, peace, done. I'm going to do it. I'm going to grow in favor with God and the people around me. Next slide. Now look with me at the same verses in chapter 3, 13 to 15. Please could you read it with me from the screen. Let's read it together. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her profit, wisdom's profit, is better than the profit of silver, and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing desire compares with her. So 
In other words, it's like this. Wisdom is better than anything. Wisdom is better than anything. So I want to ask the children to to help me again. Can you say this for me? Can you stand up, young people, and say this for me? Wisdom is better than... Oh, good. Now, parents, if you will allow your kids to shout in the gathering, is that okay? Is that okay? Okay. Kids, a little louder. I need to hear this, all right? Wisdom is better than anything. Okay, according to this, it's more precious than jewels and nothing to desire. So I've got another clip that we need to look at just to understand how to celebrate this, okay? Can we run that? Let's see how it goes. Well, doesn't want to run today. Wisdom is better than anything. I thought Daffy Duck would give me the perfect way to celebrate. Wisdom is better than anything. Wisdom is better than anything else that you desire. But wait a second. got to get back to my story. We need more background to get a better handle on Solomon. And what is wisdom anyway? And why is wisdom such a big deal to God? Well, let's review what we know so far. Before these three kings, Israel was a loose confederation of tribes. The problem with this one confederation under God is that the people did not follow the instruction and commandments that God had given to them. Every person did pretty much whatever she or he wanted. Israel could have been an amazing nation. A kingdom of priests. God tells them in Exodus 19.6, they could have been a kingdom of priests, but instead, individually and corporately, they fail to embrace God and walk with Him. So God gives them a central authority. Instead of Himself, they get a king, Saul. God chooses Saul, who fails again and again to follow and obey God's instruction to him. If... Saul had followed God's instruction. He would have had his kingdom extended indefinitely. With his disobedience, the kingdom is taken away from him. And lest you think God made a mistake in choosing Saul, Saul in his kingly disobedience becomes a perfect training ground for David. David is anointed king at about the age of 13. For 17 years. Years. He waits as God allows him to be an outlaw, wanted dead or dead by King Saul. He lives in caves and forests like a robber and draws to himself about 600 men who are running from the law as well. 
all kinds of people who are in some kind of trouble, some training school to be king, right? And may I say this about waiting? Waiting is one of God's significant tools in the discipleship of his followers. If you have been made to wait on God for an answer to prayer or for him to rescue you out of hardship, difficulties, and problems, you have experienced the great favor of God. Patient, thankful waiting is a distinguishing characteristic of a godly Jesus follower. When David does become king, he follows God with all his heart and obeys God. Within a 33-year period, David takes this confederation hodgepodge and whips every single enemy around Israel, such that the country stretches from the Euphrates, if we could have the map, please, stretches from the Euphrates River to the river of Egypt. This is the kingdom that young Solomon is inheriting. Doesn't want to go. Okay. If you recall Troy's message from last week, you'll remember that David did have failings in his kingship where he did not obey God. He murdered Uriah, a non-Israeli foreigner who was far more honorable than David himself. And David had an affair with and then married Uriah's wife Bathsheba. Solomon's older brother died in infancy as a consequence of David's sin. Solomon was the youngest son of four other sons born to David and Bathsheba. Okay, there's our map. Notice the pink area. The pink area is where Jerusalem or where the Israelites were scattered when they first entered that uh, the uh, Palestine. But now, within a 33-year period, David has uh, defeated the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Arameans. And his kingdom extends from way down there in the south of Egypt all the way up to the Euphrates River, modern-day Baghdad. In a 33-year period, they go from that hodgepodge confederation to an empire. So we want to look at our text today. As we read that text that has been assigned, we find Solomon beginning to, to reign, his reign as king. David is dead, and Solomon is consolidating the kingdom under his authority. Our text is in 1 Kings 3, 1 to 15. It's in page 238 in, in the Brown Bibles. And I want to say as we're talking together, we're going to go back and forth between this passage and that earlier passage that we looked at at Proverbs 3. So if you want to keep your thumb so we can go back and forth, that would be ideal. <coughs> Yeah, we're a little bit ahead of ourselves. There we go. That's where we want to be. Now, um, the first, the text that we want to read, this is, again, First uh, Kings chapter 3, 1 to 15. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord, and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because the temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. 
Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices for what was the most important high place, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, You've shown great kindness, great loving kindness to your servant, my father David. Because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart, you have continued this great loving kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I'm only a little child. And I don't know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon asked him for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among the kings of the earth. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands, as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke and realized it had been a dream. The first big idea that I want to talk about is expediency over wisdom. We saw from the map there that uh, uh, if we go back to our map, we note that Egypt is a powerful neighbor that Israel worries about. Only 400 years before, the people of Israel were slaves serving the Egyptians and from that time always had to be cautious of the ambitions of their powerful southern neighbor. This is the first time that anyone imagined an alliance between Israel and Egypt formed through Solomon's marriage to Pharaoh's daughter. But wait a moment. Didn't Moses say in Exodus 34, 16, that the people were not to make a treaty with the people of the land? Because such a treaty could lead to intermarriage and the children of Israel to be induced to follow and serve other gods? This is exactly what happened to Solomon. Later in his life, the daughter of Pharaoh and the many other foreign wives, Solomon had 700 wives, turned Solomon's heart away from following God. But you could just about hear the advisors around Solomon saying, Moses taught we could not intermarry with the people from the land. 
the Egyptians are not in the land. Besides, what better way to protect ourselves from an, an Egyptian invasion? Kind of see the political expediency here? Second big idea, high places, imitating the wrong ways. In verses 2 to 4. We find in verses 2 to 4, we find a spiritual expediency. Again, God has made it clear through Moses that the people are to completely destroy all vestiges of the worship that took place before the people arrived in Palestine. Now, as our kids were growing up, I had an adventure with Dad with each of the, my kids. Uh, this is my daughter, Abby, when she is, was 13. She and I went on an archaeological dig in Israel. And this is Abby experiencing Dead Sea mud. Uh, a bus driver said that if you wipe it all over yourself, it's really healthy. And it'll help your skin be luxurious forever. So we did it. And this is Abby today. Um, I don't know who had the bigger crisis, she when she turned 30 or me having a daughter who's 30. <laughs> That's a hard thing. Anyway, on our dig, I asked the archaeologist, what are the high places? He said ancient peoples associated the tops of hills and mountains as the abode of the gods and so placed altars or worship stations there. He also said high places could be small kiosks or ledges built in the wall near the gate of a city. The Israelites used many of these high places, changing them for the worship of God or mixing together worship of God and worship of the pagan deities. Instead of destroying these places, the Israelites made them their very own. In our culture, there are many gods to worship. Being self-serving, I mean, can you hear the commercial saying, you deserve to treat yourself. Working for others' approval, idolizing control or wealth or power or sex. Need I go on? One of the gods I find myself prone to worship is independence. When this same daughter, Abby, was two, I told her, she must hold my hand when we cross the street. She said, I hold my own little hand. <laughs> yes, exactly. The sins of the father being reproduced in the little girl. Coming off the mission field, I keep having this illusion that I don't have to be so dependent on God. This is my culture. I understand the language. Oh yes, I will worship you, I say. But in my heart, I want to control my life. Instead of freely entrusting it to Him as His willing servant. It puts me in mind of another verse. Again, from Proverbs 19.3. Let's read it. The foolishness of man ruins his way, and his heart rages against the Lord. Or, in other words, people ruin their lives by their own stupidity, and then they blame God. Boy, I can relate to that. I've had my rage moments. God's nature, 
his wisdom. His commandments are given to us to keep us from our own self-destruction. Since we not, cannot see the self-destructive tendencies in our lives until he reveals them to us, we often perceive God as a big bother, merely inconvenient. In these two instances related to Solomon, he did not follow God's expressed will. And the writer of 1 Kings is foreshadowing the two elements that will lead to Solomon's downfall. His many wives and his worship of foreign gods on the high places of Israel. Instead of shepherding Israel in the pursuit of God, he will allow the people to develop this practice. And they'll make it into a habit, which eventually ensnares them in unhelpful, destructive Paganistic worship. Solomon's political and spiritual expediency lead him around God's inconvenient rules to his own destruction. How is it possible that you and me so often misunderstand God's deep and abiding love for us and consider him and his ways inconvenient? Well, the next big idea is wisdom prevails, and we see this in verse 5. We also are often surprised at God's wild heart. Notice verse 5 in our text. Ask me what I'm to give you. Wait a second. You're God, the creator of all things. You're a great king, the Lord of all. You don't ask me. You tell me, and I do it. So often we talk about how you cannot treat God like Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy. Bring me this. Give me that. And yet here is God saying to uh, Solomon, what do you want? What can I get for you? How would you respond? God says to you, ask me, what am I to give you? What would you say? You want my unfiltered default response? I want a new car. Yeah, better than that rust bucket I'm driving. And, and I want my daughter's laurels college paid for. Can I have that? And I want, and I want, and I want. Give me, give me, give me. Unfortunately, I find myself telling God, if I only had the next thing, then I would be happy. Then. No, I'm not kidding this time, God. For sure, this one thing will make me happy. Happy, happy, happy. Just the next thing. You see, I do not intuitively possess the wisdom to ask God for the wisdom to help me fulfill His wonderful purpose for my life. By contrast, Solomon made the choice for wisdom. And notice his choice as he talks with God. Verse 6. He, he, note in verse 6, twice Solomon identifies God's great loving kindness. This is a fa- phrase repeated throughout the Old Testament. God's loving kindness is everlasting. Would you meditate on this phrase with me for a moment? God's love. 
for me is unwavering. It never changes and is always kind and is every moment of every day for all eternity. That's the meaning of everlasting. God's loving kindness is everlasting. That's the meaning of this phrase. It never changes. Solomon recognized God's perfect love for him. He also realized that this is a crazy position to be in. God, I'm to be asking you for what you want. I'm your servant, O God. Solomon says that he is God's servant three times. In the book I showed you, Bitter Choices, many of the societies of the North Caucasus are informal, clan-based, relatively egalitarian societies like our own. As the Russians sought to conquer these societies, they wanted the people with no experience of monarchy to be submitted to the Tsar. Oftentimes, I don't feel like I get this servant thing. God, you and me are buddies, right? But we're not. We're servants of a great king. I'm to be his willing servant. Solomon understood such submission, and in verses 7, 8, and 9, he pointed it out. And he expresses his concern to fulfill his servanthood of God adequately. God, I'm, I'm a very young man. How should I shepherd this great people of yours? As I mentioned before, God wanted his people to be a kingdom of priests under him. A unique, godly nation that is in an ongoing, vivid testimony to the people and nations of the world. Solomon's kingship would either help Israel fulfill God's purposes or cause Israel to further indulge their wandering away from God. And God responded to, to Solomon. Look at verse 13. He would give Solomon wisdom. What is wisdom? You might want to write this down if we could look at the definition. Wisdom is thinking, acting, and speaking if, as if God exists. And that God will judge me appropriately for every thought, action, and word. That's wisdom. Wisdom is living as if God is. That He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If, if I act with you here at a church gathering one way and I act a completely inappropriate way somewhere else, when none of you are there who knows or sees what I'm thinking or doing or speaking, it's a big problem. We call it a double life. I'm acting like God doesn't exist. But He does exist. And notice how God goes rogue again with Solomon, verse 13. Not only would He give Solomon wisdom, but He would also give him riches. And honor. In fact, the Bible says that all the kings of the earth came to learn from Solomon's wisdom and to observe the great wealth of his kingdom. 
Gold was so plentiful in Solomon's day that anything made of silver, anything made of silver, anything made of silver was considered worthless, useless, useless, trash. We only use gold here. That was how opulent the kingdom was. And Jesus himself confirmed Solomon's amazing wealth and the fact that the peoples outside of Israel sought out Solomon for his wisdom. Will you choose wisdom? Let's go back to Proverbs 3. Long life is in wisdom's right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways. And all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Tree huggers and happy are all who hold her fast. The pursuit of God, the pursuit of his wisdom, his life. Solomon embraced God's task for him and willingly set out to fulfill it. Solomon could not help if God is so generous that he lavished all the other blessings upon him. This is the great God we serve. A God who loves us so much that if we will follow him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, he lavishes on us more than we could ever expect or hope for. Now I have to be careful here. Am I saying that God will make us rich? That's not my intention. God will do whatever He wants. He might make you rich and me poor or vice versa. My blessing is to follow and to obey Him reservedly no matter what my condition, rich or poor. However, I will say this. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 22 says, It is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich. And he adds no sorrow to it. Key question is if. Look at verse 14. This isn't God's if. As we have already discussed, His love is unwavering and kind and is toward you and me every day for all eternity. The if is for you and me. Saul was told, you will follow me and keep my commandments. If you will follow me and keep my commandments. David was told, if you will follow me and keep my commandments. Solomon is now told, if you will walk in my ways, keeping my wise law and commandments as your father David did, then I will prolong your days. How about you? If. In the word if is perseverance. May we go back to Proverbs 3 again? Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves. Even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. The people of God are often being challenged and pressed and trained in wisdom and in righteousness. They often must endure to wait 
and wait and wait some more. The temptation for me to say is, I don't want to do this. I'm tired of training. And some followers of Jesus decide God's training is too much to endure, too severe, and walk away from the faith. This is what happened to Saul. This is what eventually happened to Solomon. Solomon would not keep God's ways, and he let his heart be turned away from God. Get this. The wisest man who ever lived, according to the Bible, Solomon, who chose wisdom before all else, foolishly let his relationship with God erode away to his great detriment and to the detriment of his nation. We cannot be so foolish. Instead, we must hold on to God, preserving through all the challenges we face, holding on to Him and resting in Him again and again. Then the last big idea is feast. I don't want to finish this message on a negative note. Rather, I'd look at the next slide. (laughs) I'd ask you to notice verse 15 in our text. Solomon makes a feast for all of his servants. It's a party. Meeting with God and learning of his wisdom is a party. In the presence of God is feasting. It's Thanksgiving until your soul hurts and says, feed me till I want no more. That is our great God. Psalm 16 says, in God's presence is fullness of joy. In His right hand are pleasures forever. Like Solomon, let's choose wisdom. Kids, what does it say? Wisdom. Oh, you forgot. Try it again. Come on, nice and loud. Wisdom. That's it. There's my man. Wisdom is better than anything. Let's choose wisdom. Let's think and act and speak because God is and because He's watching and because He has amazing acts of service for us to do in His name. Unlike Solomon, let's persevere in our relationship with God. No matter what comes to us, good or bad, our wisdom is to choose God and to live for Him. Let's pray together. Jesus, Your goodness is reflected in Your servant. And Lord, we see the challenges that He faces and the pressures We don't understand fully what caused Solomon to make those choices to turn away from you. But the same things that are in him are in me. The same things that are in him are in these dear people here. So I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to choose you and choose you each day. And to rest in your great loving kindness. Teach us your wisdom. Like Solomon, we don't know how to go out or to come in. Thank you that you know that we are but dust.
Thank you for your goodness to us. We choose you. We choose wisdom, knowing that wisdom is better than anything. Teach us how to walk with you this day. And we ask this for your namesake. Amen.